Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new episode featuring Kevin Much, an old friend of mine, an old colleague and compatriot in the uh, independent alternative comic scene. And he's one of those guys from the old neighborhood who's gone on to make good. <laughs> yes, indeed. Kevin has just put out a wonderful book called The Rough Pearl from Fanagraphics, which, as he talks about today, is a dream come true for him. And The Rough Pearl is a really great book. It's about midlife career angst and anxiety, midlife stuff in general. Uh, and it's about the art world and it's about zombies and it's about comics and I think if you love comics you're going to find this a really fascinating book because it, it's a trip through the psyche of an artist really, a uh, cartoonist in this case and w- really in a lot of ways the, uh, the stuff that goes into making anything and in this case all of that stuff takes the form of life's general frustrations and anxieties and zombies. (laughs) So it's a great book. It really is. It's a really great book, and it's a great exploration of the creative mind and really, in some ways, what it takes to make a work of art. So I think you're going to find it a a really fascinating read. If you uh, are looking for some summertime reading and you want to be a little bit challenged and a little unnerved uh, and taken someplace interesting, I encourage you to go out and pick up The Rough Pearl wherever books are sold. Kevin and I have a bit of a backstory. We collaborated in uh, 2010, 2011 on a broadsheet comics newspaper anthology called Pood. And it featured a whole array of alternative independent comics artists and gave over one big 17 inch by 24 inch page to each artist to work on in the manner of the old comic sections from you know the first decade of of newspaper comics in the first decade of the 20th century it was inspired by that by my love of those kinds of comics and and that kind of format for comics and then DC Comics had put out in 2009, I think it was a, something called Wednesday's Comics, and it literally, it was exactly that. Not quite as big as, as ours was, but it featured serialized comics over a period of like six weeks, maybe a little bit longer, I don't remember exactly, featuring one page for each creative team working on one of DC's characters, whether it was Adam Strange by Paul Pope, which I, I remember fondly, or or Commandy, or any uh, of a number of other DC characters. I loved it, and uh, I really enjoyed that, and it really got me excited about doing something similar, and Kevin and I got together with another gentleman by the name of Alex Rader. We put Pood together, and we brought together a whole group of artists we admired, like Henrik Rare and Sarah Edward Corbett and 
Jim Rugg and Connor Williamson and Bishak Sum, Tobias Tack, uh, and a variety of other folks whose names are escaping me now. And Joe Staten. How can, how can I forget Joe Staten? Oh, my gosh. Uh, he, he, Joe Staten of the great E-Man, of course, from back in the day. And uh, Kevin and I were both big fans of E-Man, and he was kind enough to do a page, a whole page for us featuring E-Man. Uh, Joe Staten, of course, is the artist working on Dick Tracy these days, among so many other great comics that he worked on back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, just amazing. A legend. So, um, anyway... I gotta see if I can get Joe on the show. That would be that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Okay. It was a very gratifying experience. We did it for four issues, and it had some success. It was distributed to comic shops. We did really well at Mocha with it one year. A lot of fun, and it was uh, very gratifying to me and to Kevin, I think, to do this uh, and and see it reach an audience. That was kind of the whole point and and also about the love of comics and the love of newspaper comics and uh, anyway that was how we got together that's where our relationship began we've come full circle in a way you know I've, I went on to do uh, a comic strip following Pood as a matter of fact my comic strip Plastic Baby Heads from Outer Space began in Pood as a, a fill-in for a cartoonist, uh, who, again, whose name's is, name escapes me, who, who was unable to meet the deadline, and so we needed to fill up a page, and we all contributed a little comic strip, and my little comic strip actually grew out of Pood. It's strange. It, it's not sound funny, really. It sounds a little strange. A lot of things grow out of Pood, but um, usually when you use it in the garden. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> plastic baby heads and maybe that's why the reason it didn't do so well <laughs> anyway the strip I did on Go Comics for a number of years and then it led into an interest for me uh, again back to working in, in gag not gag comics but I always loved newspaper comics and that format and uh, so it opened up a whole pile of avenues and Kevin went on to continue working in graphic novels which he'd, he'd been doing and of course Kevin has put together at least three graphic novels now The Rough Pearl from Fantagraphics which you can get at Fantagraphics website Fantagraphics.com or at any bookstore near you or Amazon if you have to go there uh, or uh, and, and then he's got uh, the precursor to The Rough Pearl called Fantastic Life, which is available uh, along with his other work at KevinMuch.com. Uh, that's Kevin, M-U-T-C-H.com. Fantastic Life is the precursor to The Rough Pearl. Uh, and that was a Zurich winner in 2010 and included in Best American Comics in 2011. And then he's got his great adventure story, which is almost 400 pages now. And if you want to get a taste of it, you can read it at KevinMuch.com. Or better yet, you can get book one of The Moon Prince, uh, which is a wonderful kind of steampunk adventure story. Uh, and featuring his children, Max and Molly, both of whom have grown up in the process over the 10 years that Kevin's been working on the book. But nevertheless, it's available too on KevinMuch.com. So check it out. I know this is what I usually do at the end of the show, but here I am at the beginning. And I don't know, I'm all kind of, I'm all backwards today, I guess, because I haven't done the show in a while. But um, I know Kevin would be thrilled, so would I, if you would uh, uh, look into his website and pick up some of his work and go to Fanographics and buy The Rough Pearl. You're going to find it a great read. I, I, no doubt about it, so I encourage you to do that. 
So let's get to it. The first half hour of this discussion really is about Kevin's move to Canada. So uh, I think you're going to find that interesting. If you don't, you can jump ahead 30 minutes, okay? Uh, or so. It's somewhere in there anyway. Um, but it is, it is really interesting because Kevin recently picked up, two years ago I guess now, wow, time flies, picked up with his whole family, uh, his wife Mel and his kids Max and Molly and, and their cat, and they moved to Canada, and uh, which is Kevin's home originally. Kevin's from Winnipeg. And they've recently moved much closer to the States than that. They, they moved to Hamilton, which is right across the, uh, the border, just above Toronto, uh, not too far from Buffalo. But uh, it is a big culture change, big culture shock. And so the first half hour is really about that. So let's get right to it. My friend Kevin Much and myself in conversation. It's my legal obligation to tell you I've started recording, okay? Just because this might be, just saying hi to you might be fun and who knows. (laughs) (laughs) So just get off the top. But uh, no, we're good. You know, uh, we're hanging out here at home and not moving around that's you that's that's pretty much our usual way um i mean we live you know we live in the boonies so uh we're isolated as it is so we didn't have to do much in terms of social isolation and uh, social distancing sort of built in uh but how are you guys you know it's actually a very similar story um i have been working from home for several years um you know, plus, you know, working on graphic novels. So, you know, two more solitary and uh, pandemic-friendly activities you could not imagine. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been harder for, for Mel, for my wife, because um, you know, she's an actress. Right. And uh, so she had all of these different gigs, as actresses do. She had all of these different gigs going, and they all dried up the exact same day, whatever the day was, the middle of March, and suddenly she was completely unemployed. Oh, man. Oh, it's got to not, I mean, the loss of income is huge, but also I know for somebody who's a creative person like Mel is, uh, to all of a sudden lose that outlet is just got to be devastating. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that in the acting business, they've been moving increasingly to uh, auditioning via tape. And that's uh, that's helpful for her. So she's still been able to do some auditions. And the process of doing all of these auditions and having my son, you know, working as her cameraman and lighting guy and sound guy has actually got the two of them making little movies now. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And I'm very impressed with what they've come up with. So that's good to see. And then my daughter just gave me not 25 minutes ago, just gave me my latest COVID cut. So she's learning how to cut hair in the apocalypse. <laughs> so you guys are well set. You will, you will survive and do well fo- following the, uh, the fallout of everything. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, you know, we kind of left uh, the New York City area two years ago, mm-hmm. coming up on two years ago. And um, even at the time... It felt a little bit as, you know, I kept joking, it feels like we're, you know, driving a car out of a burning warehouse. Yeah. Yeah, I can. That's an apt description in a way. I mean, uh, and so was it the, you know, the election that precipitated the move or was it 
more than I mean, you don't just make a move for that, I guess. But were there other things that contributed as well? Well, for us, it was a number of factors. Um, you know, we're you know we're a, a a mixed race family, an interracial family, and uh, you know, it's no secret that uh, the politics of Trumpian America mm-hmm. are very difficult um, for a lot of African Americans in particular, which my wife is. Um, so sure, there's that. You know, there's a, a, a disappointment with the kind of uh, political uh, direction that the country has been in, and uh, the disparity. You know, the the differences between the richest and the poorest, mm-hmm. all of that. Um, in our case, uh, a lot of it had to do with just the, the economics of it are getting sure. very very weird for people who are in, you know, what they call in New York, what they call creatives, which, yeah. which doesn't necessarily mean fine artists. It mostly means people who work in creative industries. In my case, you know, I work in the music business. Yeah. And um, so for creatives, um, it's becoming more and more this kind of like gig economy, uh, the, the health care, the cost of housing around New York has gotten, you know, sky high. Sure. And my son turned 18 uh, a couple of weeks after we left. It's so he's college age. Yeah, yeah. And we compared, you know, there's there were two colleges that we looked at for him because he's interested in a lot of the same stuff I am. He draws comics and always has. Very interested in video games as well. So we looked at uh, the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, which is like probably the second or third top-rated um, commercial art program in the in the country, mm-hmm. you know, for for people that want to work as creatives in those businesses. And the other ones would be Cal Arts, right? Uh, that Disney founded, yeah, and um, Sheridan College in Southern Ontario. And because my son's a Canadian citizen through me because I was born in Winnipeg, Canada, um, for him to go to Sheridan College in American money was like $7,000 a year. Oh, and to go to the School of Visual Arts was like $60,000 a sure. year. Sure, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and, and it, you know, people get into these insane, they let their, they, well, they're forced to let their kids take on, you know, these debts that are like a mortgage. It's like a quarter mm-hmm. of a million or sometimes $400,000 debts. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, it's right. Weird that, that, you know, because I'm in that industry, yeah. <laughs> well, call it yeah. an industry. Uh, it, it's one of the things that bothers, uh, and it, as, as chair, it bothered me an awful lot. Uh, the whole idea that people are going deep into debt. I mean, I'm in debt as it is. I'll be paying off my student loan until... I'm 70 something and uh, wow. I've got a minimum payment. This is a graduate school student loans. And, uh, and luckily, you know, it worked out for me and I was lucky at the time I was able to consolidate the loan. I got a very low, low pay, uh, low payment when we needed to make low payments and it's just going to continue on it until, you know, who knows when. And, but that was 25 years ago or something, you know, when I did that and and it's only grown. And so students, you know, I, I just feel terrible the situation they find themselves in when they go to a public or private institution rather 
And, uh, you know, and particularly for art students who have to go, for the most part, if you're going to get a great education, you're going to go to, if you're going to go to an art school, it's a private institution that's going to, you know, it's going to cost an arm and a leg. And there's no guarantee of success afterwards and probably a couple of years of being out in the weeds, you know, trying to find work to sustain yourself. So all of that, those pressures are just God awful. And, uh, you know, it's something that that has weighed on my mind and my colleagues' minds all along because, you know, we've been in that situation and um, any way out of it is, is to me, you know, a benefit one way or the other. I, I'd love, you know. I'd love to see higher education uh, be available to all, you know, for very limited price, <laughs> if not free for all, you know, as Bernie asked, uh, often suggested. Yeah, so, well, hopefully that'll be something that gets a closer look as all of this unfolds. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have this entire generation of young people that are just, oh. you know, you can't really string them along much further. I think everybody you know, had already, the screw had been tightened as, to the point where blood was being drawn already, you know. Yeah. And in some ways it's unsustainable. And uh, yeah, it really is. And, and some, there has to be some alter, something has to change, something has to shift, you know, and uh, I'm not sure what it is exactly. But uh, I mean, and with progressive politics in the United States, I mean, the, the figures who represent progressive politics these days, it seems to be, that there is and and there is a large portion of the population that's very supportive of many of those ideas uh i just uh, hope that it's a rising tide you know that forces the the shift but that being said uh politics aside uh for, for folks who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Kevin Much, who is the, the cartoonist of The Rough Pearl, and which is out from Fanagraphics now and available through Amazon and at your local independent bookstore, as well as all of the chains all across the nation. And uh, so get out there and pick it up. It's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. And we were just talking about Kevin and his family moved two years ago from New, the New York metropolitan region to to canada and uh, uh it, the town is hamilton right that's right yeah it's um it sometimes gets referred to as the pittsburgh of the north <laughs> okay and why that why is that uh it's an old steel town um okay. it was the center of the canadian steel business for about 100 years and as was the case in pittsburgh and other rust belt cities uh, the manufacturing uh, went away starting the 60s and then, you know, really by the 1990s, uh, it was an economic catastrophe here. So, you know, people might have this image of Canadian cities as, uh, you know, very uh, different from American cities. But um, actually, Hamilton feels very much like one of those Rust Belt towns. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of rundown, abandoned factories, and uh, just in the last ten or fifteen years, it's uh, really started to turn around because uh, it's near enough. It's about thirty kilometers, maybe you know, less than twenty miles from Toronto, which is a big place. Toronto is about the same size as Atlanta, right. um, and Toronto is a very gentrified knowledge economy. 
uh, you know, world city. It's, uh, it's similar in that sense to a lot of places like, uh, well, like New York, smaller yeah. version of that. And a lot of people have been priced out. So they've started moving to Hamilton. And when we got here, we were a little surprised to find that people automatically assumed that we're Torontonians fleeing fleeing that. (laughs) And I I don't want to tell them that we're fleeing New York City, which might sound even worse, uh, you know, because it becomes like a kind of like goddamn yuppies kind of thing coming here, wrecking our, our town. So I, I often just tell people, look, I'm from Winnipeg, which is, if anything, an, you know, an even uh, grittier Canadian city. How far is Winnipeg from where you are now? Oh, Winnipeg is about, uh, in miles, I think about 1,500 miles from here. So Winnipeg is north of North Dakota. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't realize it was that far west. Wow. Yeah, it's my- the coldest city of any size in the world. Oh my gosh. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, it's so, much colder than where we are now. Where we are now in southern Ontario, Winnipeg is 500 miles north of where we are now. And oh you know, many miles west. It's uh-huh. the most isolated place you can imagine. It's a little bit like growing up in the middle of the Australian outback, except <laughs> bitterly cold. Bitterly cold. Oh my gosh. And and I can imagine uh, I think from I, I've seen, I follow Mel on Instagram, and I think I've seen some of her response to the cold, and I can only imagine what, what it would have felt like to go to Winnipeg for her. I mean, just for, for those of us who are, you know, uh, uh, Northeasterners or or those of us from warmer climes, just going to Canada, uh, even Toronto can be a shock in the wintertime, I'm sure. Yeah, Toronto, you know, Toronto is sort of on the same, Southern Ontario is kind of on the same latitude as like maybe Boston. Mm. Uh, so it's a little north of New York, but only about 100 miles. It's oh, okay. not, not much colder, you know, it doesn't get quite as hot in the summer, it gets a little colder in the winter. But, you know, coming from where I originally came from, uh, <laughs> I, I just find this absolutely relaxing. That's great. <laughs> That's great. So, oh, that's awesome, man. It's kind of great that you, you just, I mean, to me, it seems like what a brave thing to do to pick up your family, you know, and, and move your whole life north in, in part for reasons I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic to. And also, you know, for just for the, the mundane economics of it, the fact that, you know, the cost of living might be a little bit less, but also just Canada has available health care and it has a world-class university that is affordable and uh, for you, for Max to go to. And, and I think that that's just, it's great, but it's also a very brave thing to do. I mean, particularly at, you know, we're not getting any younger. So, you know, it's, it's always scary to pick up stakes and move. Yeah. I, I, I said, you know, more than once during this, that this was going to have to be the last move that I ever made <laughs> because, you know, we keep buying these old houses and they need work. And it's like, uh, you know, at a certain point in your life, it starts to get a little tough yeah. um, to be doing major construction. Yeah. Um, I, I've been forcing my son, you know, to do a lot of it. And now he's starting to learn how to do it a little better. And that that's helped. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very, you know, nerve-wracking process the hardest part to be frank was getting out of 
uh, we lived in urban New Jersey in a mm-hmm. city called Union City, which if you've ever watched The Sopranos, um, it's the first town Tony drives through when he comes through uh, the Lincoln Tunnel at the, ah. in the opening credits. Okay. So Union City is like right above the Lincoln Tunnel. It's built over top of it, Ooh, oh. and it it overlooks Chelsea. Um, you know the sort of yeah. the dockyards sort of area of uh, New York on the west side, and um, it's you know like a lot of places in inner New Jersey and Hudson County in particular. Um, you know they use that area as um, an example in Corruption 101 in a course in civic planning that's taught, wow. I think, at UCLA. So it's like cor- Civic Corruption 101, Hudson County, New Jersey. And selling a house there, I mean, that was a very, very difficult and nerve-wracking experience to the point where, you know, at one point, uh, we actually had the media involved, The, the you know, the, the number one news uh, ABC, the flagship ABC station in the United States, WABC Manhattan, was preparing to do a piece on what we were going through to try and sell our house. Oh my gosh! Up to oh. and including bribes. There was bribery involved. You, oh my God! You're kidding me. I kid you not. And I swore. I said I will never set foot in New Jersey again. The the entire experience was like a big long episode of The Sopranos. Oh my <laughs> gosh! I I can't. Wow, I can imagine. Well, this sounds like the next graphic novel. Yeah, it's. I've been. I've been writing it all down. It was kind of an incredible thing. But in the end, we got out. We sold our house, uh, yeah. and we came up here. And you know, once we crossed the border, everything got a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a, you know, I have very mixed emotions about the entire experience. Um, I showed up in the United States as a younger man. I was in my early 30s when I got there. And it's like one of these immigrant stories. I showed up there with like a hundred bucks. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, when I left, you know, America was like this kind of, you know, it was like falling into a warm bath in a way because it was like, here's all these opportunities. Mm -hmm. Here are all these dreams come true. You know, you get to live in L.A., you get to live in New York City. I lived in Manhattan for many years. Um, My kids grew up in a, you know, with fantastic views of the Empire State Building outside their bedroom windows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, incredible. And I got to do everything I dreamt of doing. And then at a certain point, you realize this is kind of becoming impossible and Mm. it gets more and more difficult every year. Um, and it's not just from getting older. I think a lot of it is just that the circumstances have changed. And a lot of people, when we were talking to a lot of our, you know, a lot of our friends are artists, and everyone kept saying, it's over, it's over. Thinking about New York City in the same way that it was in the 70s and 80s as like this world capital for uh, young artists to flock to and make something happen is now is a bit like imagining that that still goes on in Paris. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a way, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly, you know, 
in the 60s and 70s, going back all the way to, you know, post-war era, even the Depression era, artists were, you know, lived in Manhattan, worked in Manhattan, uh, you know, and as the years went on, that just became more and more gentrified and more and more expensive. And so what happened in New York during the 60s and 70s in Soho, for example, you know, by the time the 90s rolled around, that was all over and done with. It was it was no longer affordable, you know, for artists to do that. And of course, they, you know, artists moved out to Williamsburg and other places within the vicinity. But it, it, the prices just keep going up, and more and more gentrification. And you know, it's more and more expensive to if you're a painter or an artist or something, and you want to have a studio. It's you know more and more expensive to find any place to do your work. And then the outlets for the work have become so much more like corporations and yes uh, you know uh, uh, the galleries in chelsea are it's like sometimes like walking through uh, uh you know uh, i don't know one of those outlet malls with you know all these stores these major chain stores you know and uh, it's that kind of feeling rather than the kind of vibe that ha- was there in the 60s and the 70s and even into the early 80s when the lower east side was booming with uh that particular era uh when it was kind of there was a diy attitude you know came out of punk and moved into and that and that's all where is that now you know even the galleries in williamsburg i think are are more blue chip in a way than than they are uh, they don't have that kind of grit anymore in that way No, it's all been, it's just been whitewashed. And, you know, when we were there, um, so many people would be talking about like, oh, well, you know, we're going to go to, well, I had friends move to Philly. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had students, I used to teach um, in New York, and I had students moving to Detroit, you know, places oh. like that, uh-huh. um, where it was super affordable. And that's yeah. what, you know, that's what, you know, everyone always makes the joke that artists are the shock troops of gentrification. Right. Exactly. And that's just what drives it, right? And that's exactly what's going on here where we moved to in Canada and to Hamilton. Everyone refers to Hamilton as uh, the Pittsburgh of the North, but they also refer to it as Toronto's Brooklyn. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and we know what happened to Brooklyn. And, and I mean, Brooklyn's a great place. I love living in Brooklyn. It was so the time of our lives. And I still love yeah. Brooklyn. But, uh, but in terms of, you know, every artist who was, you know, all of the artists moved out of Manhattan and found their way into Brooklyn one way or the other. And then once artists did, of course, as you, you noted, uh, everything else follows, um, you know, high-end stores and, and lawyers and doctors eventually. Yes, that's even happening where we are here in Hamilton. You know, we're in downtown Hamilton and, uh, it's this, uh, we're kind of just off the skid row of Hamilton, you know, the sketchiest part where all the hookers and junkies are. Uh-oh. And everyone's like, oh my God, why would you move there? It's so incredibly dangerous. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, it's still not as bad as Winnipeg, <laughs> where I'm originally from. Not nearly. It's a lot less, you know, and compared to the United States, like compared to where we were in New Jersey, it doesn't feel bad. For one thing, there's almost no guns. Oh, yeah, that's a big you know? difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's harder to kill someone with a knife, you know? It's like <laughs> you, you can... Run away from a knife, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that whole gun thing, is a, there's a different attitude about guns, right? Uh, yeah. 
in Canada than there is in the United States, and uh, availability is different too. I'm I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, I I think it's great, and I'm glad that you've landed on your feet and things are are working out well there after a couple of years. And uh, I must I imagine it must have been difficult for the kids, for Max and Molly, uh, because they were leaving friends and uh, high yes. school. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think it was easier for my son because he's, you know, now he's he got into Sheridan, uh, and so he's, you know, he's taking exactly what he wants, or he was until this pandemic, you know, kind of <laughs> stopped classes. Oh, uh, was his freshman year? Yeah. Wow. Okay. What a tough year. Right. Yeah. It's really tough. So I'm going to open up ginger ale. People, I, I just don't want people to think it's a anything other than a ginger ale <laughs> I'm, in this, I'm in this closet um where my studio is my studio i say upstairs and uh deb made this this fabric closet she turned it into a studio for me you know put fabric on the wall so it's like soundproof and everything but it's a closet you know so it, and it's a really hot day here so oh, I'm sure. I, I, so i brought up a, a ginger ale to keep me cool anyway so <laughs> so that's it's, what hot, that's it's hot here too i think we're only probably 150 miles from you oh really what yeah is, you know last a couple of years ago uh we went to uh quebec for the summer for a couple of weeks or not for a couple of weeks i mean for a week something like that anyway and we had the greatest time and uh we just absolutely love quebec and we're thinking oh you know next year or whenever we take a vacation again because usually we always say it's going to be next year it usually ends up being five years maybe ten even yeah uh, the old house syndrome that needs a lot of work you know all the money yeah. goes to that so yeah. Anyway, uh, so we lo- we loved Quebec, and we were there for a while. And we were thinking, oh, well, next we got to go to Montreal, and then we got to go to Toronto. You know, so uh, one of these days, you know, we will do it again because we really enjoyed it. And we we, we just found it was so interesting crossing the border into Canada. Uh, the difference between the border guards in Canada and the reception that they gave us when we left, which was and entered Canada, they were just so welcoming and very nice. And then the, the border guards, when we crossed back into the States, man, the difference is just, it's a world of difference in attitude. Uh, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been through that a bunch of times. We We finally just got to the point where we just like decided to button our lips and just... <laughs> you know, take it. Yeah. Just go. And, and yeah. Oh, well, anyway, uh, we have other things to talk about for sure. And, and one of them is the rough Pearl and, um, that's a real, I mean, wow. What a dream come true. Uh, uh your first graphic novel coming out from Fanagraphics. That's, that's a, what a great achievement. And, um, Thank it's a you. great book. Yeah. It's a terrific book. And of course I was, uh, you were posting, uh, pages from it several years ago when you first began working on it i loved it right from the start so it was really gratifying for me to see that you know a major publisher picked it up and uh that's really exciting so congratulations and um you know i hope the book is doing well although its debut coincided with covid19 and uh in some ways maybe that's fitting but it maybe it's (laughs) so how do you describe this book? Well, okay, before we go into talking about the book, the book debuted 
right when i mean it came out like april 1st or 2nd or something like that i think it was the 7th yeah okay so it's like two weeks after everything starts to shut down or three weeks after everything shut down and then comic book shops shut down the whole thing And, and distribution shut down yeah so i mean how has that affected you have affected the book um how are you recovering from that well uh, you know i try to look at it philosophically i mean first of all um not to make a long story out of it but you know i i started doing comics uh again after taking 20 years off from them when i was around 40. Mm-hmm. and at that age you know and starting after so many years away from it, I, you know, I don't know what kind of expectations I had. I was just sort of more interested in doing it. Uh, But part of what interested me about comics to get me back into it was seeing what had happened in the 20 years I wasn't involved in, in, in particular, you know, the advent of literary graphic novels, as they would call them, Mm -hmm. many of which were coming out from Fantagraphics. And uh, there was a big touring show that Fantagraphics put on called Misfit Lit in the 90s that went around to different uh, art galleries. And I was involved in an art gallery in Canada that brought in Misfit Lit. And everyone said, oh, you, you had an interest in comics at one time, I seem to recall. Why don't you, you know, unpack the show? So there I was after like all these years involved in the art world, but not the comics world. And I'm unpacking these crates and taking out like original works by Charles Burns and Robert Crumb and on and on. And so that's, you know, really because of Fantagraphics, that's what got me interested in it again. Mm -hmm. And so when I started doing them again in a serious way, my, you know, I don't know that I even had a dream. My dream would have been just to do something and have it turn out halfway decent. And I did a first graphic novel, uh, which was Fantastic Life. And then the second one was Rough Pearl. So now I'm like probably 15 or 16 years into it. Um, and just to have Fantagraphics publish it, all of which to say, just to have Fantagraphics publish it was, that's the dream come true. Yeah, that's the for me, you know, that level of validation was much more than I expected going into this. Uh Uh, And I'm thrilled at that. So I, you know, for a long time, for the last month and a half, I think I had the only copy of the book in Canada next to me. And I had it in my hands and I, you know, I'm looking at this thing and it's got the FB on the spine. Yeah. And. It's a beautiful object. They really, you know, we worked with their, their designer is really great. And I, I love the way the thing feels. It's like got a nice heft. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just, that is in a way as much as I would ever need. You know, I could literally take that to the grave. (laughs) I'd be like, wow, that was great. I had a book published by Fatographics. Did anyone even get to read it? Well, you know, let's let's face it. I mean, the audience for comics of that type is not enormous anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the comics business, they refer to graphic novels as evergreens because right. they're not like 
you know, the, the superhero part of the market where they come and go on a monthly basis and they have a pretty short shelf life. So I hope that when this is all over and the, the stores have all reopened and the distribution channels have unfrozen, I hope that it'll make its way into some stores and I hope that people will get a chance to read it. Um, uh, there's been reviews coming out already, so mm -hmm. at least reviewers are getting their hands on it. And I'm, you know, I, I'm more worried, frankly, about the future of the comic book business yeah. for, than I am about my own position within it. Because I, I never expected to, to get this far, and I'm just happy to be here at this point. It's definitely weird to have had it collapse you know, like mm -hmm. that at the exact moment. And there's even a panel, there's a page in the rough pearl where the Adam character is sitting in a limousine and he's with um, oh, a, I an art, yeah, an art world guy, a gallerist. Um, and he's thinking to himself, I can't believe it. All my dreams are coming true. I'm, I just sold a piece at the best gallery in New York city. And uh, I'm on my way to this and that and the other. I can't believe it. All my dreams are coming true. And then he looks out the window this is exactly what happens on this page in the book. He looks out the window of the limousine and he, he has this kind of hallucination thing that keeps happening to him. He looks out the window and he sees a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> That's what he sees <laughs> out, out the window. And my life in the last two months has been exactly like that page. It's been a combination of, I can't believe it, all my dreams are coming true, to, oh my God, there's a global pandemic. Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. Right. Exactly. And it coincided exactly with that. It just goes to show you can put things out in the world and and you, you fine tune them and try to control as much of it as you can and and make it, you know, ready for the public. And and when it goes out into the world, there's nothing you can do about the circumstances or the context. And and yeah. you have no idea, you know, what that little, you know, project is going out into the world what kind of world it's going out into you know and and uh, that's that's certainly what happened here it's it's unbelievable and it's exactly just it's perfect your description is absolutely perfect i'm looking at the page and it's so apropos oh my god yeah you know uh a kind of apocalypse happened here just as as your dreams were coming true in a way and well you know um maybe that's maybe that for uh, some something good coming out uh when this is all over with you know maybe the book will rise to the top and people will yeah. uh, you know find a find it a kind of interesting cautionary tale i i just hope i mean i think comic book stores uh were in a long-term transition anyway the comic book business was in a long-term transition anyway um in particular away from w what everyone calls floppies right yeah and towards uh, things like graphic novels. But it was like a, you know, a, a questionable business model. It's never been as, you know, it's, it's not a popular part of popular culture in the sense uh, that one would define popular culture as something where it's like audiences are in the millions. It's not right. anymore. It might've been in maybe up until the 1960s. Yeah, but it's a fraction of that now. It's maybe a tenth or a twentieth of that. And will it survive? I mean, uh, you know, 
on our street, all these trendy little restaurants were starting to open up uh, mm-hmm. right as we moved here. That was another part of our our dreams are coming true. <laughs> so we're going to live in, you know, the Williamsburg of Canada. It's the something yeah. of Canada every time. And now they're all like sitting there shuttered. And oh. we're thinking, will they come back? Will there be anything when this is over? Yeah. And I think I worry about, I mean, for God's sake, everybody, go to fatographics.com and buy some books. Yeah. Support them. They are in a world of hurt because of what's going on, as are all other publishers. But this publisher in particular, you know, is not, they're not a commercial publisher per se. Mm -hmm. They're doing everything that they do. They're doing for the love of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's what got the business up and running. And and I have to say, fans of this show know that um, I mentioned fanographics like all the time. I mean, it goes on yeah. <laughs> because everything I read comes from fanographics, whether we're talking about, you know, the Peanuts complete series or we're yeah. talking about Dennis the Menace or we're talking about Kevin Much's Rough Pearl or or uh, Jaime Hernandez and Love yeah. and Rockets. You know, I've been I, I've been buying the Carl Barks library oh, yeah. for years. I've got one that I'm reading, a, a volume of the Uncle Scrooge stories that I'm reading right now. Sure. Oh, well, I just and I'm, I'm uh, you know, I keep saying this uh, in the last couple of shows. My birthday was about a month or, uh, in the beginning of the month. My wife just went nuts because it was my 60th birthday and she bought me all kinds of stuff. And among the things, I mean, and pretty much all of it comes from fanographics. <laughs> and <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I'm just in the middle of reading, um, what is it? The, the Mr. Natural, uh, book that, right. had. you know, yeah. I, I just read Fritz the cat I've got. And then the big thing that she got me was, um, the artist's edition of Jaime Hernandez's work on love and rockets, which just is a mind blowing piece of of work it's just incredible it's one of those books you know where uh they're facsimiles of the original pages and um yes uh, you know i haven't had a chance to actually to dive into it because i've been so busy but uh just amazing stuff and I, I love that company i love you know there was a period of time they were doing these wonderful uh oversized comic books that i just died for they were the ignat series it was called everything they've done they, they've done out of a love for the form and also um, out of, you know, without fear of branching into new territory. They've they've always done that. It's been a hallmark of of their publishing history. And uh, there's just so so many riches to be found at fanographics.com, including Kevin Much's The Rough Pearl. So, uh, yes, go there. Check it out. And this is not being paid for by Fanographics, just so you know. But I'm a big supporter. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial-free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. 
Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Um, so so it is yeah publishers are hurting and it, it's it is i mean we've been talking about the end of you know comic book business and comic shops for it seems like since their inception in one way or the other but and they've survived in various forms and with you know various amounts of success um i haven't been out our local comic well we have a couple local comic shops i don't know how they're doing lately uh usually i don't go because uh, to them very often because they focus primarily on superhero stuff and that's that's really not my my thing you know uh when you get out out here into the hinterlands you know comic shops off they rarely venture into um you know alternative territory so right uh but anyway um, they do need support and when we can all get back out there again, it's a good, good idea to head to your local comic shop and pick something up. Um, so Kevin, what is the rough Pearl about for our, our audience? What we, we want to give them some insight into the book and, and you know what it's about and why they should go to Fantagraphics and pick it up. So, you know, well, it, yeah. I mean, the first thing uh, about it to know is that it's um, it's about somebody who's in their early 30s in the 1990s, and he's a white male. He's a cisgender white Protestant male type. (laughs) And it's he's so he's somebody that was born in the early 60s. And grew up thinking that there was this kind of like social contract with the universe where people like him were going to be in charge um, or at least looked after. And um, it's turning out to be not that way. It's, you know, it's it's a, a time where the pages are turning in the history books to something else. And he's actually... Uh, left Canada with his wife, and they're both uh, trying to find and hold down teaching gigs. Uh, She's teaching at the Women's Studies Department at Columbia University, and he has an adjunct position at a thinly disguised version of the uh, Fashion Institute of Technology, and the book is called The Fashion Institute of Manhattan, which is a commercial art school. So he's somebody with a fine art background who's teaching in a commercial art school and is lucky to have, uh, you know, a couple of uh, classes a term as an adjunct um, and considers himself actually slightly lucky because he couldn't even get that in Canada. Uh, and he complains at one point, he's uh, in a kind of tone deaf way. He's uh, sitting talking to one of his students who's an African-American a uh, woman from Baltimore who's couch surfing uh, as she tries to make her way uh, through college and, you know, trying to cobble together the tuition and really living hand to mouth. And she's supporting herself as a stripper. And in this tone deaf way, he looks at her and says, I had to leave Canada because they wouldn't even hire you if you were a white male anymore. You know, it was very explicitly said. And so he's he's sort of feeling sorry for himself, even though, you know, clearly in the bigger picture, it's like, what does he have to feel sorry for compared to so many other people? 
And I think the book is in a way about that. It's about like um, the relationship between different perspectives, and uh, in, in particular trajectories that people might be on in the world now or the world of the last 25 years where there's like some groups are coming up and some groups are coming down and things are changing and there's it's all contested ground people are mad uh there's all kinds of like class resentment there's also terrible race resentment and so the story is sort of trying to um show those kinds of collisions. Uh, it's from the perspective of uh, a white male, largely because I am one, and I didn't feel like, uh, I really didn't feel like I, I was in a position to write from any other kind of perspective, you know? Well, uh, how much of the book is, I mean, autobiographical in, in that sense? I mean, um, certainly there's some parallels between Adam's trajectory in the book. I mean, there aren't zombies in your life, but there is COVID. Um, but yeah. you know, but there is some parallels. I mean, you came to New York in the '90s, and and you were in your 30s then, right? And so, yeah. some parallels. So, how how close and where does that veer? You know, away from. That's a good question. It's about half and half. It's about half autobiographical and half fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, the zombies thing, by the way, is sort of autobiographical in as much as um, I saw uh, the original, the George Romero zombie movies, I saw them when I was a teenager on TV mm -hmm. and promptly started having recurring nightmares about zombies. Oh. Oh, and man. I have suffered from those for 40 years. You're kidding me. Oh my I God. You not. My, my, my wife is so used to this. Oh, <laughs> with me oh, sitting up in the middle of the night, and she'll be like, "Oh, it was another zombie nightmare, wasn't it?" Oh my God, yeah. that's intense. You know, um, my wife can't watch that film uh, ever. She saw it once, and it's filled her with dread, and she can't, you know, can't ever watch that film again. It freaked her out, and she doesn't have nightmares like. I mean, she has terrible nightmares of her own, but they're not zombie related. But yeah. I mean, that's incredible that it, Im it you know imprinted on your psyche that strongly that for the rest of your adult life you're walking around with these zombies in your head. Yeah, I mean, it was like um, it got bad enough that I mean, I was trying to sort of work it out in the first book that I did, uh, Fantastic Life, which is about the same character at an earlier point in his life. Right. And how he's having a hard time because these horrible nightmares are bleeding into his uh, daily life. And that hasn't obviously happened to me. But there's almost this similar sense when you're having recurring nightmares like, you know, two and three times a week. And they're really, really vivid and horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> where you start to get to the point where you're afraid to go to sleep. There becomes like this kind of sense of it's like it's this is affecting my life in a bad way. And funnily enough. We finally, as a family, we started watching on AMC, you know, we started watching The Walking Dead uh, whenever, the, you know, five or six years ago, I guess, when it got onto streaming. And um, that was like a version therapy for me because seeing so much, like, you know, dozens and, and maybe hundreds of episodes of this zombie story uh, made me eventually much more kind of like relaxed i think about the idea <laughs> and so the nightmares have gotten a lot better 
Well, that's something to be said. I, I I don't think I've ever heard anybody respond to The Walking Dead by saying that they it made them relaxed. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. So it's funny because you know there was a review of The Rough Pearl that just came out. Um, I forget the reviewer's name, um, but he his you know it was a, it was a very nice review. It was a positive review, but he he did make this comment that he felt like. Uh, you know, I was trying to go for the mass market by oh. latching on to the zombie craze, right? Oh, man. And I, and I thought, you know, you know, first of all, I, if I was trying to go for the mass market, I mean, I probably would have been approaching, you know, different publishers. Image or somebody, um, yeah, yeah, sure. And, and writing a different type of story. But, you know, secondly, I mean, um, that... The, the zombie thing is like, you know, it, it's legitimate to me. It came out of, you know, it's about a guy having nightmares. It's not yeah. about, it's not a zombie story. It's about somebody having nightmares. Uh, and he also sees ghosts and aliens. He's kind of losing his mind. Yeah. So there's a lot of this idea of like reality breaking down. And the book deliberately obscures the question of is, is any of this, uh, actually happening? Is it almost like a science fiction story where it's like there's this kind of like, you know, multiverse of, of different things that are bleeding into each other? Um, there are hints in the book that maybe it is. You know, there are places in the book where things get said to him that are about the future that he couldn't possibly know yet. Right, right. Um, so it's not just like some sort of psycho drama. <laughs> it's not. It's not just a, a you know people have been writing about it as you know it's this people were complimenting me for you know writing about mental illness. But <laughs> I'm not really trying to write about mental illness. No, you know, and I didn't get that. I, I have to tell you, I don't. I, I maybe I found one or two of the reviews more spot on, but I haven't found the book. Okay. The stuff about race and gender and identity, I found to be sort of like a subtext, a context in which maybe every old middle-aged white guy exists in, but I didn't find it to be in the forefront of the book. Really what I found to be in the forefront of the book was the story of this guy's kind of confrontation with a track in life in which that, it was deeply unsatisfying and was having these psychological um, implications um, or psychological effects really on, on his well-being. And at the same time, he encounters a person, uh, Reagan, right, who yeah. offers him an alternative view of, of what life could be. Um, a, a, a different possibility and and that there are forces with that surround him whether they are structural or whether they are uh, you know uh, part of the physics of the universe or whether they are uh, just fate or they are simply imagined that um, try to convince him that this the path that he's on is the path that he's meant to be on and that in some sense the structure of the universe depends upon him following this path and he at one point or another has to, you know, come to terms with that. And he's, he's met this person who is opening up a different side of him and a different world to him. And there is a choice to be made. And it's, it, it somehow to me also suggests that there, there's something slightly dangerous. Well, it's a risk, right. To, to yeah. get off the track. But at one point or another, he's, you know, he's literally threatened with the idea that if you stay on the path you are on, 
You know, it is not going to end well, but it's the path you're meant to be on. Yeah. You know, and that seems to me the crux of the book is like this, this decision and, and absurdly enough, and I'm not going to do a spoiler here, but it's very strange. And maybe this is totally off base, but I found the last panel of the book. Um, and, and I, I, maybe I should say spoiler alert, you know, (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) Okay. This this is a spoiler alert. So if you want to get this book, you don't want to know what's happening. Skip this part, go, you know, ahead a little bit. Um, the world is crumbling around him, completely falling apart. And yet he's in bed with this woman who's changing his life. And, and in some sense, there is something to me hopeful in that moment yeah the world is falling apart but here in this bed these two people have come together and there is something to be born something new to be born from that and uh and i i found it you know maybe totally off base but i found that ending to be very hopeful and um while the rest of the book is you know filled with trauma and and difficulty and uh but Still, that struggle seems to, you know, have possibility uh, for for a positive resolution at the end. Anyway, so I suppose that's spoiler end. So am I totally off base? Uh, No, you're exactly right. And um, the ending is kind of, I mean, it's deliberately ambiguous, but it's meant to imply that no matter how uh, shut down he might be, I mean, it's meant to be a kind of hopeful rejoinder, in a sense, to this uh, central idea that he is stymied and his options have dropped away and been pared down to one, Um, which is, you know, in a way, I mean, you could talk about that in the context of, like, what was it like to be, like, a white male growing up uh, in this time and, you know, no longer feeling yourself to have these options and possibilities uh, but it's also, I think, very much about middle age. Yeah. Know? I think it's probably just as true for, you know, anyone uh, mm-hmm. at that point in their life when they're in their early 30s and they're married and they're thinking, now what? You know? Yes. yes. And I think so. That, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the, the ending itself is kind of meant as a rejoinder where it's like, on the one hand, uh, he does seem to have uh, been shut down. Mm-hmm. And then there's all of these other versions of the, there's five, four or five versions of the end. Uh-huh. And the last page is one of them. Okay. <laughs> and it was put there after some thought about, like, maybe I could have it be the second last or the third last or you know what maybe the last should be really downbeat you know so that it's more you know mm-hmm. literary <laughs> well i don't know you know I... but then i just thought the, well okay the first book that i did fantastic life the last page was like a real downer you know the guy's sitting there in the, in the first book the guy's sitting there alone he's he's pushed this woman away from him because of his own paranoia and he's sitting by himself, saying to himself, I'm alone. Thank God. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and so I thought, well, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I don't want to. No. So I, I went for the hopeful ending. 
I think, yeah, it is a hopeful ending. And it might, might sound cliche, but, you know, in I mean, what is it? Uh, I, I think about um, uh, something Joseph Campbell said, you know, uh, love bears all things. And, and in some sense, love bears the, the you know, the end, the apocalypse, too. And, and really, I mean, what are we here for? I mean, of all things that of all uh, feelings or ideas that happen within the universe, probably the rarest are, is love, you know, as far as we know, because wanton destruction happens all the time. You know, hate is pervasive everywhere, but love, love is something that is rare. And, and, uh, to be, you know, you don't find love on Saturn, you know, you don't find love, you know, out in the universe where, where asteroids are, you know, exploding into one another and, uh, falling on planets. It's not, it's, it's here. You barely even find it. You barely even find it in human history. Yeah. The way we have it now, because Mm -hmm. this is really the last hundred years or so. It's the first time you've had people spending many decades together mm-hmm. as a couple mm-hmm. in love trying to navigate that we're not even really wired for that i mean and, and, you know the character of adam i think gets into that problem a little bit you know i was talking to somebody the other day and they said how long did it take you to do this book and i said seven years just like the seven year itch or seven years of bad luck <laughs> 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 and I was thinking about, like, you know, these this idea of seven years and jealousy and relationships falling apart. And in a way, Adam, you know, who's married in the book, the character of Adam is married to um, this woman, Anna. And right. they've been together for about seven years. And it's just kind of the relationship is kind of at a natural breaking point. Both of yeah. them are kind of like looking around. Well, and growing apart. And, yeah, and it certainly seems like at that point that they're both miserable and um, yeah. seeking something else. And for you know, I mean, in that circumstances, uh, in that circumstance rather, I mean, yeah, all, all the more power to you. You've got to start to find a way out. You can't, you know, chain yourself to a situation that is so miserable and um, for both parties, you know. Uh, and so it was natural, right, for them to be exploring and and open to new possibilities, and and that's what happens. But uh, um, along the way, you know, it's not that it's a more circuitous route uh, for people who are listening and wondering what the book is about. It takes Adam, you know, uh, through his life in academia and his life in the art world, and it, in one way or another, lampoons both. Uh, both of those places, but I also found it to be quite honest in its responses to those worlds. And, uh, you know, those portraits seem to me, I mean, because what you were talking about in your journey was very, not, not too far afield from my own journey. And Mm -hmm. I think we might've talked about this years ago, but, um, you know, so when I was reading it, I was like, yeah, you know, it seems very true to my own experience and my own uh, recognition of those places. They seem very real to me, both academia and and the art world in that, in that sense, you know, uh, how the art world works and what makes one thing work and not another. And uh, then again, how what academia is like and what people are yeah. looking for. Well, you know, I mean, earlier you were asking me how much of it is autobiographical, and I said about half. Mm -hmm. And um, even the half that isn't autobiographical is uh, based on, you know, people that I know, 
So, for example, um, he gets into an affair with a student, uh, and the student is actually based on my wife. Uh, so let me hasten to assure everyone that that's not how I met my wife. Um, <laughs> but I, I did have a friend um, from grad school days who met his wife that way, uh-huh. uh, teaching. And she was one of his students. And, you know, nowadays this is like an extremely problematic thing. It was already a problematic thing 30 years ago uh, when, you know, the, the events that I'm kind of basing that part of the book on uh, were related to me. Uh, it was already a little sketchy. Sure. Uh, then, and it was really common in art schools in particular. Uh, you know, the profs at the first art school that I went to for my undergrad, you know, it was like all of these couples, uh-huh. uh, these teaching couples, and one would be a prof. Typically, this was a Canadian art school in the 1980s, so typically the male profs, you know, a, a very large number of them were Americans that had come up to dodge the draft, and they got the first uh, teaching jobs in Canadian universities because they had these American credentials, and Canadian universities were just starting to have art schools. Are you know BFAs, and then you would have these couples. So the the, the men would be the Americans profs would come up, and the females would be uh, their students who had then gone on to get an MFA, and then they came back and married them. Yeah, and there were like four or five of these couples at the art school that I went to, and everyone resented it. I mean, even then in the 1980s, people were like, "This just isn't right," you know. Right. Uh, it felt like uh, very incestuous, very political. Uh, today, I think it's more seen from a kind of Me Too perspective about a power imbalance. Uh, but back then, it was, you know, it, it was just like everyone was mad that, you know, people had an inside track to these teaching jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By, by sleeping with the profs, you know. <laughs> well, and there was, it did seem to be something that was common in, in those days, although it was something... Uh, you know, I only, I mean, as students, I only heard about, you know, I mean, I heard about parties that professors were at and things of that. Yeah. So, so all of which to say, I mean, you know, that part of the book in the rough pearl that's going on, but it's not autobiographical. Right. Uh, and there are many other, you know, similar examples of things that didn't happen to me, but that happened to people that I knew well enough to know the story mm-hmm. and to be able to base part of this story on that set of circumstances. And the reason I'm saying all this is that I think of that process of coming up with a story like the Rough Pearl as like a magpie type of thing. You know, it's like you have bits and pieces of your own life. Right. And you bust them out of their original context and you throw some of it away that's not relevant to what you're hoping to to come up with. And then you string them together and then there's this kind of interstitial glue, this tissue of lies, you know, of fiction that might be, you're, you're grabbing it from wherever you can. It might be something that somebody you know had happened to them. Mm-hmm. It might be something that you just heard about third hand. It might be uh something that happened to you but happened in a very different way so like the zombie thing bleeding into real life it didn't exactly happen to me but it it almost started to feel like that Mm -hmm. so you all of that you i hope 
kind of congeals and coheres into a story, but it's not fiction and it's not autobiography. And I, I think a lot of people in comics, in the, you know, the, the first literary comics that got that label, were mm -hmm. thought of as autobio. Everyone yeah. says autobio auto comics. Right. And I'm, I've tried, I've done short autobio pieces. I find it very difficult to do anything autobio that's more than 10 or 11 pages uh, because most of life is really boring. <laughs> well, and, and the reality is, yeah, that I, I, I think that's true. You know, uh, auto, I, I can't do autobio. I, I've tried, or I have this idea in my head that I'm going to write a memoir, you know, just for myself, just so, just to record the names and, and faces and my encounters with people that, who meant something to me so that, you know, somewhere there's a little record of my grandmother or, or my mother somewhere that some, maybe a nephew will pick up, or, but I can never bring myself to do it. I've got, and, and I don't know why part of it has to do with this feeling. Well, and I think that, you know, it impacts all of us, this idea of, a sense of insignificance, you know, that this is really, you know, what does this really matter? It really doesn't add up. I mean, it's just yeah. another. And I think in the beginning when work like that was getting done, there was this charm to it where it was like, yeah. isn't that amazing to examine the minutia, you know, mm. of one's life. And there's so much truth and it's a literary truth, you know, yeah. this is a literary impulse. The idea that you have to be telling this kind of truth. Yeah. About the world and not not making it a, about plot. <laughs> you know? yeah. But I do think and, and I think this is the, the process that you go through by taking your life and the lives and the stories you've heard and and structuring it. I mean, that is the process of of writing fiction. You know, that is literally it. It's taking the stuff of life and transforming it and transforming yeah. it medium. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll add a caveat, though, from my own experience, which is I'm at the same time that I was doing this book, I've been working for a really long time on this um, a sort of all ages adventure type story. That's a very, very different type of story. The Moon Prince. Um, the Moon Prince. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is fiction. It's right, not yeah. there's very little in it that's drawn from my lived experience. I, I often think about the distinction between the two types of story because when I write like that, I find myself constantly going back to, you know, I read a great deal of science fiction as a kid, like tons, thousands of books. That's all I did as a teenager. <laughs> and, and as a result, I always find myself thinking, well, I'm synthesizing all of these, you know, I'm grinding up all of these old stories and, you know, synthesizing this new story. And it's almost like, what do you get by grinding up these tropes and and, and recontextualizing it into like a new, you know, way of looking at a, a similar story, in, in this case, a colonial adventure story, mm -hmm. like what Edgar Rice Burroughs would write, mm -hmm. where... You look at it many years later and you think, well, you know, obviously that's what Tarzan was. But, of course, that's also what the Pellucidar stories were. It's also what the Barsoom stories and the Venus stories. They're all colonial adventures. Right. You, and it's this white hero, white male hero goes to a place where everyone's less uh, advanced and civilized and becomes their king. 
They right. made me their king, and now I have that empire. And when you're a twelve-year-old boy, that's great, you know. Sure. Yeah. When you're a twelve-year-old white boy, and um, so I was trying to write that type of story, but from the perspective of like um, young brown kids. Uh -huh. I was trying to write a story for my own kids, your kids, you know, who are not white, and I couldn't let. I remember thinking, I can't let my son read. Edgar Rice Burroughs as a 12-year-old, I can't, I can't give him a Tarzan book. The kid is black. I don't want him reading that shit. It's garbage, uh -huh. even though I love it. But it's horrible, awful, racist garbage from any random page. And you can't get away from that. That doesn't mean it's like bad writing or a bad adventure or something like that. But it's just like you just don't, you know, you can't get away from that. It's like the Will Eisner, Ebony White problem you know that's yeah still you getting... can't get away from that either yeah. yeah so i wanted to write something that reminded me of that uh type of story but tell a story that was kind of anti-colonial you know so mm -hmm. i had this like i had this idea about why i'm going to write this it's going to be for brown kids any kid but i mean it's not going to have you know a young white male at its heart Secondly, it's going to seem like it's a chosen one story, but in the end, it turns out not to be a chosen one story because they totally piss me off. And three, it's going to be anti-colonial. It's going to turn out that the supposedly primitive people everywhere else, uh, not only are they not actually primitive, but they don't need anyone's help. Thank you very much. So I had this premise, and then I took all of these bits and chunks and pieces of all of these other stories. So in that way, it's writing about writing. And it yeah. feels very different to get back to our, you know, salient point about writing autobiographically or semi-autobiographically or from life. That's a type of writing um, in that adventure story that's not from life. It's from art. It's from literature. And it really feels very different. And I don't know how much, you know, I don't know if I would put one above the other. I mean, I think that... Uh, they're, they're both interesting ways to work, but they really are different in kind. Yeah, um, it's interesting. As you describe the moon prints, I almost feel as though you're talking about a thesis in a way that is a, a running commentary on, as you pointed out, the, the science fiction stories that you read as a kid. And you're consciously, I mean, you've just said this, it's really, I'm just reiterating what you said, but you're consciously taking that stuff and reorganizing it for, you know, a, a, a different worldview, a different perspective. And, you know, I mean, Burroughs was writing from that perspective of, you know, the, the uh, colonial power. Right. Yeah. And, and this idea that they had built into their heads and it was not just Burroughs. It was the entire culture, really, sure. this idea uh, about its status in the world and how it would play out in these these adventure stories, whether it's in, you know, Africa and it's Tarzan or it's on Venus. Right. Uh, yeah. Or Mars. And, and it's John Carter. Um, yeah. You know, it plays out the same way because that's the idea they had about colonialism. Well, you know, it's 100 years later and we all know, you know, the caveats and the problems that have arisen historically and, and traditionally from those kinds of attitudes and ideas and we are in some ways more culturally aware 
so we look at things from a different perspective. And so you can go back and, and it's really kind of an interesting um, analytical process, you know, to look into, wow, what, you know, what was this stuff about? And what kinds of what what are our ideas about this now? And how do we, you know, how do we write this same kind of story? This kind of that has the same kind of sense of thrill and adventure to it, um, yeah. same kind of excitement, and and make it for a population that is inherently more diverse and more aware, you know. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and in the, in that way, yeah, it's it's about fiction, but it's also about the culture. You know, and in and in the same way that Burroughs's books are revealing of the culture they existed in and were created in, uh, and the way any artwork is. I mean, so is the Moonprints then, you know, revelatory about the culture of late 20th century, early 21st century uh, Western Hemisphere worldviews, you know, and and how they've changed. So it's kind of interesting. You're right. It, it, you know, when you talk about the Rough Pearl, you talk about it in a way that sounds a lot more personal. Uh, and, and that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, you know, what's, um, from an evolutionary perspective too, just to go back to the point you were just making about, you know, change over time, um, a, a interesting example of a very similar type of story that again, in my own life was like incredibly thrilling and important to me as a young person were the uncle Scrooge stories, which I, yeah. I just, I mentioned them earlier, you know, that I'm buying them from fan graphics to reread. And um, those came out in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And the Burroughs stories were mostly coming out between the 20s and the 40s. It's interesting because this, the Barks Uncle Scrooge stories are, uh, they're not unracist, mm -hmm. but they're not as racist. Well, okay. And, 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 and Tintin and it, too, you know, if you look at Tintin, it's like the very first couple of Tintins were more racist, but then by the end of it, you could see it going away. That's interesting. Yeah. And and I wonder what one attributes that to uh, evolution of the of the artist or uh, or what society around them. I think. Yeah, it know? could be. You know, yeah. different. You know, uh, I mean, certainly. I mean, I'm not sure of my history in regard to Tintin, but I mean, when you're talking about World War II, obviously, you know, parochial view, the United States had a very parochial view uh, even into World War II. I mean, you know, there's a brief foray in World War One, and, and but before that, you know, the attitude was we don't want to be involved around the world. And then um, that changed gradually, you know, and uh, but of course, no, you know, away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Right. And, and but I'm wondering about something like uh, Harridge and, and Tintin, um, you know, what the impact was there. Uh, obviously, France, if, Harridge was French or Belgian, Belgian. Belgian, uh, but yeah, it did have that kind of French colonialist. Yeah, feeling, say, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about. And they uh, went to the Congo. I mean, I think that was maybe, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been the most problematic one. Sure. I'm actually a little vague on Tintin myself. I was, it wasn't that I was a big fan. I was thinking of it as a, something similar to the Uncle Scrooge stories. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm just, it's just curious, you know, to think about the impact. I mean, this is somebody's 
thesis at a comic studies program, um, you know, the impact of colonialism upon comics in the 20th century. I mean, you know, yeah. you could probably a lot, there's probably a lot there. You know? Yeah, and a lot of the newspaper strips. Sure. Uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s, we're still doing that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 all over the place. So um, the, the Moon Prince, yeah, it's a very, very different story. And it is how many pages now? It is like, uh, what is it, close to 400 pages? Yeah, I'm on page 377. The whole story is 421. And then, and believe it or not, I have, like, outlined an additional 900 pages on top oh of that. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my lord, you are a masochist. <laughs> Which I will not live to complete. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and when you start, and people ought to know, when you started the story, you really, really started it for Max and Molly, right? When they were, they were kids. They were, were what, eight, nine years old when you began this oh, book? Oh god, like, uh, I think my son was seven and my daughter was three when I got the idea. And, so, uh, you know what I was? I was watching the first Men in the Moon. There was like an in, on TV. There was like a 1960s British version. Oh, okay. Uh, the HGL store is the first Men in the Moon, and okay. um, in the <laughs> in the movie they 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 land on the surface of the moon in their you know Cavarite a contraption, and they unfurl a Union Jack, and I was watching it and I was just loving it and I was thinking like. I love how steampunk it is. Mm -hmm. And I love the kind of like tongue in cheek imperialism of it that just seems silly. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that started me thinking about Edgar Rice Burroughs books about, you know, he even had people in, you know, on the moon in some of his books, he had the moon maid and the moon man, same thing over and over. It's always this colonialist enterprise. And then I started thinking about my kids, and that was where I got the idea to do it, was, was at that point. And I had to actually wait a couple of years because I made them pose. Right. Uh, I had to wait a couple of years until they were old enough to uh, believably pose for the characters in the book because uh, I used photo reference extensively. Yeah. And then I had to hurry up. Yeah, because it's such a long story. I had to hurry up and photograph them for 420 pages of photo reference, oh. which is like something like there's something like 50,000 photos that I took. Oh, my Lord. And and they put up with this. <laughs> yeah. Every Saturday for about five years. Oh, my gosh. For how long every Saturday? For about five years. Yeah. No, I mean, like for how long every. Uh, oh, like, for how, um, oh, a couple hours couple of hours oh my gosh those poor kids yeah oh my. i would always take them for ice cream They're oh really okay long suffering and patient and melissa had to pose too she's i know <laughs> she's in there too yeah got to but it, it, it does fold into you know an actor's duties you know in some sense so i mean yeah. it, in that way it, it it capitalizes on her talent in that area yeah she was a real trooper <laughs> Oh my gosh, and it was a family project. So that's part one of our discussion with Kevin Much about his brand new graphic novel, The Rough Pearl from Fanagraphics. Head on over to Fanagraphics, fanagraphics.com. Check out their website. There's a million things to buy there, but make sure the first thing you put in your shopping cart is The Rough Pearl by Kevin Much. And you can pick up 
all of Kevin's other books at kevinmuch.com. That's Kevin, M-U-T-C-H dot com. You can also get a taste of some of his other work there. If you just want to see uh, what the Moon Prince is about, uh, you know, you can read a few pages there. So head on over as soon as you can. I think you're going to find it a very gratifying experience because Kevin does great comics. And we will pick it up next time talking about the process behind the artwork that is in Kevin's book, The Rough Pearl, as well as in all of his other books. He's got a very interesting approach to comics art. I think you'll dig it, and uh, so come back for that. As always, I can be found on Instagram at GroganJeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Check me out there for all of my meanderings and other things, as well as the latest posts about this program. And recently, I know I talked about this a long time ago, I stopped posting Spiking the Lens, the comic strip, uh, on my own site. I did do that, and but the darn thing just won't leave me alone. Uh, for some reason, I'm, I'm hooked on those characters, and so I'm picking it up where I left off. If you want to follow my comic strip, Spiking the Lens, you can do that on Instagram as well, at Spiking the Lens. Uh, spelled just as it sounds, spiking the lens, one word, okay? If you're looking for a new comic on Instagram, check it out, okay? Spiking the lens, at spiking the lens on Instagram. And if you are so inclined and have the funds available to you, head on over to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any contribution is welcome and greatly appreciated. So that will do it for this episode. Kevin Much Part 2 will be coming your way very quickly. I hope to have it to you next week. So check back for that. In the meantime, be well. Be healthy and safe and considerate of others. Wear your mask. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.